Warning, Weird West Radio contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Last day amongst the living. What exactly did he do to you? Call it a professional robbery. I know who you are. That love. Outlaw hunts down those who trespass against him. With no mercy. What is it? This ain't no road to ask a friend to travel. You think destiny's coming to you? My guns go back. All right, hello, welcome everyone to Weird West Radio, where we discuss all things Western related. You can find our show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, just simply search Weird West Radio. I am Michael Flores, your host, and in the studio with me today to discuss Westerns is David. Hello. And a hell of a Western dude. I am so excited to cover this movie. Yeah, so today we are going to discuss, review, and break down the Western, The Harder They Fall, with a running time of 139 minutes and a budget of $90 million. Film is directed by James Samuel, and the cinematography was Mihai Malamer Jr. Now, David, I will say this movie surprised me. It was a big budget. But it was also big in scope. Cinematography, production design, directing, action sequences. It was a film designed to showcase various black historical figures that lived in the cowboy era. This is not a historical piece. No. Nor is it historically accurate, which the director does remind the viewers with a title card before the film starts saying as much. Uh, It's been said that the movie was written to spotlight these ignored Western icons and bring them into the conversation, bring them some notoriety as opposed to worrying about historical accuracy. Uh, The film is a work of fiction that uses real black historical figures to tell a Western story. So, yeah, this is a big film, a big $90 million Netflix film, which isn't unheard of, but it is uncommon for Netflix to dump that kind of money into a film like this for their streaming platform. But the director and Netflix were intent on giving these ignored Western figures the blockbuster treatment they deserved. Now, I'm happy, David, whenever a high quality Western is made. But with the amount of artistry that went into a picture like this, you've got to think the director and cinematographer would have been thrilled 
with a flu full blown theatrical release. Yes. Oh, especially for this film, dude. I wish I kn- I didn't get a chance. I didn't get a chance to see it in theaters. But after I viewed this, I was like, I, this is a movie I wish I, I could have seen in the theater. I kicked myself because it was it did have a limited release theatrically across yes, the United States. In fact, I had the website open on release date to order the tickets and something came up uh, on the radio network that prevented me from seeing it. And after watching this on Netflix, I want to kick myself because this is a big blockbuster Western film done right. Yes, when I say done right, Magnificent Seven remake is something not done right. Not That's done right. also big budget. And something like this is the answer to that, is and, the rebuttal. And from and from the the very beginning moments, dude, even the opening credits, you have this grand scope of like this epic western right from the get-go. And I was watching it on Netflix on a very small screen oh. on an iPad. Oh, you asshole. And I'm like going how dare you? This deserves to be like plastered up in like a gigantic. You, you have to theater screen. You have to. When you have a film like this, that's big in scope. I feel so conflicted about it being produced for the small screen exclusively because it was, it was a Netflix produced film, which is meant to be seen for the most part on your streaming devices, which are iPhones and tablets and iPads the, cinema, the cinematography is stunning. Anamorphic lenses were used to get a, big, a bigger image, all shrunk down to accommodate the mobile device streaming generation. I mean, that hurts my soul. If that hurts my soul, that's got to hurt the cinematographer. Imagine yes. the amount of effort he went into, which I have an interview that I want to get into later towards the end of the show with the cinematographer. But imagine the amount of effort he went into to create this big image that's reminiscent of the 1960s and 1970s Western cinema also that it can be seen on your fucking tablet, David, not, not just not, and not just even Western cinema. I honestly feel like, you know, the way it's shot is very reminiscent of all types of movies back from back in the day in the sixties, seventies, even up to the eighties. It feels like a celebration of the classic blockbuster cinema. Yes. Yeah. And, and the fact that it's done in a Western genre and also with the, with the little twist of a black exploitation film, dude, it, it just hit every single great, great nerve in me as a fan of that cinema. Yeah, this is what I would call uh, an event type screening due to the filmic conventions employed as well as the chosen genre. Yeah. As you mentioned, the black exploitation director James Samuel used the black exploitation genre as well as the spaghetti western genre to yes. transport his narrative and dictate semantic choices that convey the chosen genres. Genres. So there was a lot being utilized to create this picture. I'm going to, I'm going to kick things off, dude, by actually the first, the, the last thing on my notes that I basically said after I analyzed this film and can you guess how many times I watched this film before we, before we reviewed it five, you're dead on. <laughs> I watched it five times, Mike. <laughs> 
that's how much I love this film it's, is because yeah. like at the very end I wrote, I honestly feel the harder they fall does a better job at being a black exploitation, being a spaghetti Western than Django. Hmm. And well, uh, right now, a lot of, I know a lot of people are like looking, are probably listening to us and basically saying, David, who is a well-known Quentin Tarantino fanboy, is going to say that a different film did a better job than him. Okay, so David, Django is a better film, I guess, but, but the harder they fall, I feel like is a better Western. Yes. A much better Western. Yes. A better Western and a better black exploitation film. Yeah. Well, that's that's open for debate because I don't even know if Django would even be Django Unchained is what we're talking about, right? Yeah, Django, yes, Django Unchained. Unchained. I don't even know. I don't even know if Django Unchained would be considered a black exploitation because there really isn't any elements of the genre that was used necessarily in a big way by Tarantino. Whereas with director James Samuel, you you get that sense oh, of the black exploitation. Yeah. So let's get into this official here. The Harder They Fall is a 2021 American revisionist Western film directed by James Samuel, who also co-wrote the screenplay. Uh, the film stars Jonathan Majors, which is one of my favorite upcoming stars currently. He's a very, very good actor. Yes. Idris Elba was also in this, which is another one of my favorites. Zazie Beetz, which is another one of my favorites. <laughs> Regina King, which is another one of my favorites. Delroy. Delroy Lindo is another one of my favorites. It goes, yeah. my love for Delroy Lindo goes back to the movie Congo. When he tells, <laughs> when he tells, what's that guy? Mr. Hohokama, quit eating my sesame cakes. <laughs> Fucking love him. So this entire film has a list stars who you very rarely see all in the same screen together. Yeah. All right. So getting back to the synopsis here, it is one a few Westerns whose principal cast members are all black. Although a fictional film, its characters are based on real cowboys, lawmen, and outlaws of the 19th century American West. The Harder They Fall had its world premiere at the BFI London Film Festival on October 6, 2021. It received a limited release on October 22nd. Shame on us for not watching it. Prior to streaming on Netflix on November 3rd. The film received and has received generally positive reviews. Yes. Okay. So this was a film that I wasn't actively following from its conception. In fact, I knew very little of it until the trailer premiered. In fact, the trailer did its job and it intrigued me. And after that, the film was on my radar and I started to yeah. follow the production. I remember when you first sent me that trailer on our messaging and yeah. I was like, going, what the hell is this? And then I watched them and going, Oh my God, this is my movie. Yeah. And I wasn't <laughs> sure what to expect because I'll be honest, there are a lot of people who attempt to do black Westerns and nine times out of 10, they're just not that great. They're not. In fact, there's nothing that really stands out with most of them. Whereas this one it absolutely does stand out. And thanks to the rise of streaming and paid channels like HBO, Showtime, Cinemax, Stars, we as Western fans are being treated to a lot more Westerns than years prior. Yeah. 
because Westerns were not as reliable at the box office as previous decades, the Western genre nearly disappeared around, I want to say the late nineties. And it wasn't until about four or five years ago that things started to pop up again yeah, there, within the Western genre. There's like a resurgence now yeah, in, for sure. in the Western genre where you see like the harder they fall and you see like, even like movies like the way of the dog is coming out and people are starting to gather around the, the Western genre again. And I'm like going, I'm, I'm very curious to know if filmmakers nowadays find Westerns much more easier to film now in today's, in today's landscape. I think there's just more opportunities because yeah. there are more options for distribution that are not just the the more traditional distribution methods, which is theatrical. And like I said, there are a lot of things that are in the way nowadays for for films to be successful at the box office. Number one, audience appetite has changed quite a bit, meaning they're not willing to go to the theater for for movies like they used to, unless it's an event like the Marvel films or the star Wars films. So that's why a lot of these regular films like Westerns and the action adventure, they're just not being made as much, but because now there are distribution alternatives, we are seeing a rise in some of these forgotten genres that weren't being used nearly as much as they should be. And that being said, we don't often get good Westerns either when we do get them. And although this film isn't necessarily perfect, the director and his team com- competently delivered a respectable Western film. And I will say this as well. It's obvious that director James Samuel understands the Western genre, which to me is key. If you are attempting to direct a Western, you better understand the genre, including its hybrid counterpart, the spaghetti western, as well as the black exploitation cinema, which James Samuel did in fact understand those fully. Which, if you're going to write a story and direct a story within those genres, you have to know the genre. He uses each of the appropriate semantics of the genre to create a stylistic piece that is unique and at times reminiscent of the pictures of Sergio Leone. And the blistering cultural relevance of the black exploitation cinema. Yeah. And that is ultimately what gives this movie its kick and its stylistic flair is the use of those two genres. Uh-huh. The film is light on political discourse, which I'm sure in these polarizing times, some will appreciate. However, The film isn't apolitical either. There are moments that could be considered politically uh, discursive. Uh, Honestly, though, the political relevance of the film has more to do with the chosen characters. Exactly. The all black cast and the effort to bring attention to the forgotten black Western outlaws, lawmen and cowboys of the era. Well, yeah. And that that's the that's the thing. I mean, like the on the political landscape side with this film it may be light but the subject matter is still really important yeah and while it while if you watch this film it seems like oh this is there's uh, the the narrative might be very simplistic it's the the the, it's the details the details in the story just make it pop even more because like 
um, the writing in it, it, it does the, it does the narrative very intelligently, you know, for a simple story, it adds these elements, this uh, from spaghetti Westerns and black exploitation films and these themes from that genre. Mm-hmm. And it does it intelligently where the message is still there. There is still a message in it. Yeah. Okay, Dave. So let's talk genre, specifically black exploitation for a moment. Black exploitation, it's a sub genre of the exploitation films that was popular in the 60s and 70s, mostly the 70s, but was also considered extremely taboo due to its content. It wasn't necessarily respected either within academic or critic circles. No, it was not. But later, through the elaborate dissection from film historians and later decade film critics, both black and white, film academia has come to realize and consider the genre an important cultural text. Cultural text and for cinema history, dude. I mean, without black exploitation, many filmmakers today would not have the influence that has, has driven their style. I mean, without black exploitation, we don't have Quentin Tarantino. We wouldn't have Spike Lee. We wouldn't have Spike Lee. There's, there is so many directors we could dig into, but just to formalize exactly what black exploitation cinema was, it was the ethnic subgenre of the exploitation film that emerged in the United States during the 1970s. Although it was coined as slanderous in some circles, specifically members of the NAACP branch yes. that had said it's proliferating offenses to the black community and its perpetuation of stereotypical characters often involved in criminal activity. However, one thing that this guy fails to realize is that the people who started the black exploitation cinema was not white people. It was actually black independent filmmakers who wanted to make movies and they were not given the opportunities to make them within the typical studio system. So they took it upon themselves to create low budget versions that actually rivaled the blockbuster films of the time. Yeah. And once the studios were like, wait a second, we passed on these directors. Um, then they hijacked the genre and yes. they started making Hollywood black exploitation films. But the genre started with actual black artists. It wasn't a yeah. white thing. It was it was black artists that wanted to make films. Now, some of the most famous films that people no doubt have heard of Shaft is probably the Shaft single is the single one most famous well-known film also sweet sweet back's badass song which was actually written produced scored directed by and stars melvin van peoples which yes is the father of mario van peoples from posse yeah so the black exploitation genre is one of those i don't want to say it's problematic but It was problematic at the time because there are people that weren't sure what they were watching was appropriate. Exactly. And I think that's the thing about black exploitation that people kind of 
automatically when people, when, when I talk to people that talk, when we discuss about black exploitation, they automatically think, oh, it's offensive because of all the, the racial yeah. implications in all the films. I'm like, no, you guys don't understand. The whole point for black exploitation was this movement in art in cinema that basically allowed these the these people these artists that normally would not get a chance yeah. to actually do it to actually go out there and become filmmakers and it's essentially like it's essentially like the beginnings of independent filmmaking yeah in a lot of ways it definitely is and that's why i really liked what james did here james samuel yeah knowing that we're dealing with a group of Western icons that have been pretty much ignored because of being black. So what he, what does he do? He takes a genre, the black exploitation genre that was used by artists that were also ignored, were not given opportunities to make films. And then he uses that very genre to bring attention and a spotlight Western figures that were pretty much just forgotten about. Yeah. It's actually pretty smart when you really start breaking down the intent behind the choices uh, of the genres he used. Now, the director of the film, as I said, James Samuel, showed a level of skill in his directing that isn't always common when it comes to first time feature film directors. Yeah. He had a clear vision. And he adequately, he adequately executed that vision. In fact, I'd say the film's success is owed to Samuel's stylistic choices yes. and his ability to translate the genre, both spaghetti western, black exploitation, and reinscribe it, reinscribe the classic archetypes for a more modern take on the revisionist western. The action sequences are everything that a Western film buff wants. Convincing action sequences that are strategically blocked and choreographed. The choice to shoot with anamorphic lenses, which I will discuss more in depth when we talk about the cinematographer. The attention to detail when it comes to the mise-en- or the mise-en-scene. Numerous frames convey so many thoughts, so many different thoughts. For example, the film takes place in for the most part, in all black towns, which did exist, they were known in various areas as the freedmen's towns, freedom towns, or simply all black town. But there was a single white town that was featured. Yes. And the entire town was painted in shades of white. Shades of white. <laughs> I thought it was such a genius maneuver. It really was. This is an obvious encoded race metaphor, and it was Quite astonishing, in my opinion. It was a quite astonishing display of artistry. The scene does somewhat evoke strong notes of the Helltown sequence from High Plains Drifter. The contrast from red to white in itself says a lot. Typically, white is used to denote purity, goodness. But here, it has a different feeling. It feels more sterile and uninviting. And the contrast of our black heroes as they ride into the all-white town with this large white backdrop seems off-putting and it draws attention to the darker figures that convey the idea that they are outsiders and are possibly unwelcomed. Yes. The production design 
was key in making a scene like this effective. And even though this is production designing work, credit has to ultimately go back to the director because the director is the, is the one with the vision. The director is the one that brings the appropriate people together to make things happen. But the production designer, that being said, should get credit as well. Now, the production designer, he actually did an interview about making this white town. And how many different shades of color or paint it took to create the sets of The Harder They Fall. Now, the reason why I like this story, David, is because there's similar stories that have been told pertaining to how and why they painted the town in yeah. High Plains Drifter red. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of a myth there with High Plains Drifter. And now we see the start of another myth here. Why the town was painted white? Why were these choices made? But I, I actually really enjoyed what they did. Let me find this interview. Hold on one second. Sure. Okay. So Martin Wist, the production designer, which I'm not familiar with his work. And if you're not, if you're not familiar, listeners out there, if you're not familiar with what a production designer does on set, essentially they're in charge of everything you see. Yes. The visuals. Yes. They work with the art department to make sure you have the proper props. You have the right backdrop. You have the right setting. The vision of the director. Yeah, and of course, the director that. dictates that to the production designer and the production designer makes sure it works. Now, why Wist estimates that in total around 250 shades appear in the film as a total, not just the white town as a completely across the board, 250 different shades appear in the film. That is something that really pops throughout the entire movie. No matter what town they're in, what room they're in, there are a vibrance. There is a vibrance to the set. There are colors that pop. And people might say, Dave, well, that doesn't work with a Western. Do you really want bright, vibrant colors in a Western? And typically you would think darker tones, maybe earth tones would work better in a Western. But the vibrant colors work really well to create an idea of, I want to say, adds to the anxiety that these characters feel having this vibrant color that pops behind them. Exactly. There are moments where the actors almost blend in with the background because their clothing matches with the vibrance of the set. It's, it's the opposite of creating contrast. You know, it's playing, it's playing the game with contrast and like doing stuff like that, especially when you're dealing with an all cast of black actors and actresses, right? You want them to pop and you want to make sure that when they're on that set, especially they want to convey a message. Oh, you know what? I didn't think about that. Yeah. When they want to convey a message, that obviously is here because it's a black exploitation film. They need to actually make sure that everything around them just makes them as individuals pop. Okay, so you you actually touch on something from a technical standpoint as well, meaning 
Now, this might sound very weird, but it's not. If you're within the film circles, you will understand. Yeah, that's why I have problems explaining it. So in film school, we actually learned how to properly light black people. Yes. You can't light them the same way. Obviously, this isn't a racist remark. This is a factual statement. Yes, the darker skin. Skin color dictates how you light the individual. And I remember we spent, I want to say, two days on properly learning how to, how to light someone who has darker skin. It made me feel a little uncomfortable since we were practicing on a fellow black student. student. Hey, can we borrow you for a second? <laughs> I mean, the guy ended up being one of my friends. You know, it was the laundress. Remember him? Yes. Yeah. But still, it was uncomfortable at first. Like, hey, buddy, we need to practice this for class. Uh, can we borrow, can you? We borrow you for a second? But hey, listen, it's a thing. And that's possibly, Dave, the reason why they do have tons of vibrant colors. Yeah. So that it 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 pops against the darker skin tone of the cast. Of the cast. And think about like the 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 idea every single time they're every single scene, the director basically cho- chose to convey a message. And if he's if that all white town that, that they're in, he wants to convey about how these characters stick out in this town. Okay. Do tons of shades of nothing but white, make it blow up. Yeah. Like, yeah. It has to be very bright. But then when you get to other towns, like I love looking back at the, uh, the film and everything and comparing the lighting, the lighting structure to the, the all white town to all of a sudden when you go to Redwood city and the building behind them is all cast in blue. Mm-hmm. My God, it, it really, it really shows color had a lot color had a lot to do with to the shaping film. the film. Yeah. And it was like, you go from like a, a town of all white just blows out. It hurts the eyes. But then when you go to Redwood city, which is a more mixed town, Mm-hmm. And suddenly the, the 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 colors are more appealing. They look smoother. They look prettier. You know, it's it's almost conveying a message of like basically, hey, that all that all white town that obviously was racist, right? Well, maybe- compared to a town that basically is all mixed, and you know, they're beautiful. They're beautiful people. Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily necessarily say the director was trying to say these people are overtly racist. I Obviously, be surprised, it's though. within the context of the times yes. as well. Um, but I would I will say that they definitely designed the white, the all white town the way they did to make it look unwelcoming to our black heroes. For sure. Now I found the interview with the production designer. Now, this is taken from architecturaldigest.com. Wist goes on to say that finally there's the town of Maysville, a highly effective set which provides a moment of levity. It first appears on the screen with the text, Maysville, it's a white town. And it is. The residents are white and so is nearly everything there. It is conceptual and fun, but it absolutely wouldn't have worked if the crew had painted everything the same stark tone. Wist estimates that around 70 different white paints were used to create depth and contrast. So it wasn't just some simple paint job with one coat of the same color. They used 70 different white paints 
He goes on to say, I love monochromatic environments. I just think it's beautiful to play with different shades and tones, Wiz says. Figuring out which white to put where was quite an intense and mind exercise for me. If you took some of those colors out and put them right next to a stark white, they might look green or blue or orange. Yeah. When put together on screen, however, it looks like your typical Western town was given a heavy dusting of baby powder. It's almost like what a kid would dream up with says it is just weird and kind of scary. And we leaned into it. Yes. It really is disconcerting. That's the reason why they went with it. Even the scene within the bank, when the bank robbery took place in the all white town Mm -hmm. and the interior is completely white. The floors are white. The pillars are white. The windows are white. The ceiling is white. The only thing that isn't white are the two black heroes that walk in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's actually very intelligent. It is. In the way they went about designing things. It's, I want to say a lot of the visuals are definitely metaphors. So when I say the piece isn't overtly political, it's not. And that's why I said it isn't apolitical either because it, I feel like it is political or at least socially political in the ways of race and identity Yeah, because there are a lot of chosen scenes that are framed a certain way or designed a certain way to convey a thought. Yes. There are probably scenes in this film that I could probably spend 30, 40 minutes breaking down. If I wanted to. Oh, easily. I mean, there, there's actually, I actually found another quote uh, from, I think it's the director, James, uh, and he basically talks about like the color saturation and why they chose it and everything. Yeah. And in the quote, he says, imagine if this were a photograph printed on really high gloss paper. We immediately agreed we should overdo the street lighting in night scenes. In fact, for the shot when Mary rides into Redwood alone, I joked with Jay Kemp that it was the most lights I've ever used in a night scene. Would you watch that scene? You can tell that basically there was a thought process and like they want to convey a certain look in that scene. Yeah. And just as a, just as a filmmaker that, that for me, that brings a smile to my face because I like the fact that the entire production team is thinking. They don't just basically say three point lighting. Okay. Do the pair, do the triangle lighting. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> because unfortunately, dude, nowadays I've just see people doing basic stuff. They're not being creative. Yeah. They don't think they don't try to actually make it into art. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Now, moving into the cinematography, which is closely associated with the, the, the mise-en-scene and the, the overall production design, because this is a type of movie where all of it heavily relies on the other. Yeah. Now, the cinematographer, Mala, Mala Emer, I apologize if I mispronounce your name, Mala Emer. He talks about the anamorphic lens choices and he says that basically, hey, I'm shooting a Western (laughs) and I thought it'd be definitely something I'd have to do by going anamorphic. 
He says, in my mind, there's no way around 2.40, which is the aspect ratio. You have to go widescreen. Yes. And he goes on to detail his process, which I'm not going to bore people. To me, this isn't boring, but I know other people may find this boring. But he goes into great detail, which I'm going to post these links on the website version of our discussion when it goes on demand so that people can take a a look at some of these interviews because they're very uh, insightful uh, when it comes to the filmmaking process. But he goes in into this in this article, he goes into detail about his lens choices and he, he says that ultimately he picked lenses that gave him a, uh, this custom squeeze via the anamorphic lens choices that gave him around 600 or 700 additional pixels. And that's why scenes like when Idris Elba is riding into town in the center. Oh yeah, dude. And there are nine people behind him. How would you ever fit those people people in in a single frame? And that's the cinematographer said, he's all like, I couldn't, there's no way the director said he wanted every one of these people in a single shot. He wanted the magnificent seven shot. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. And the only way he can get it done was by using the anamorphic lens because you get that much more room with the squeeze. So there is a lot of technical expertise being used for this film. Oh, easily. And that's ultimately why I enjoy this picture because it wasn't just your run of the mill, shoot them up, bang, bang, Western. There's a thought process behind the actual making of the movie. Yeah. In all the movies, Mike, that me and you have covered for, for the show, this is the one that I've had the most fun with. You know, like, We've covered movies in the past that have said this is amazing. It's a 10 out of 10. Yeah. And everything. But none of them have been as fun as this. Because, like, getting a chance to actually watch this film one time and falling in love with it the first time and then breaking it down, there is so much technical detail being done in this film. Yeah. My favorite scene by far is... The, the the scene in the train car when they let when they let Idris Elba out of the prison mm-hmm. and he they just gun down all the Union soldiers. The way it's shot, dude, is mind blowing to me. I'm trying to figure yeah. out. It looks like it's a wide angle, but I'm like going. They're in a narrow car. They 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 used they use anamorphic lenses. How is yeah? Because that's what that's the classic that's the classic move for spaghetti western cinematographers even with those see a classically trained cinematographer would never use a widescreen lens on for a close-up or close-up that's not that's not what they were made for technically but thanks to people like sergio leone who said fuck you and your rules (laughs) i'm gonna use widescreen or wide yeah wide wide lenses on people's faces and barrels of guns so they look huge and giant and surrealistic and that is what was utilized on this film set as well. Oh, they did absolutely. use those wide lenses uh, to um, to help with the scope. And that's why I started the show off by saying that this film is so large in scope. And of course, that meaning pertains to various choices when it comes to making this picture. Now, moving on to the cast, you you just can't get better than the cast. Oh, the cast was 
Number one, the main lead, Jonathan Majors, is an up-and-coming star that is extremely charismatic on screen. He is likable. He has screen presence. Uh, there's this swagger to his performances that really sells me. He was the lead character in this past summer's Lovecraft Country on HBO. He also has been recently cast as a major player in the upcoming Marvel films. Yes, Kang the Conqueror. He'll be playing Kang the Conqueror, which is a major... He's a villain of sorts, right? Yeah, he's he, a, he is a villain. Yeah. So he... Definitely. Finally, it seems like he got recognized for his talent because he had been acting for a while, but wasn't getting the roles. Then you, of course, have Regina King, who is on a career high. She's amazing. She has been around for so long and yet really never got her due until maybe four years ago. She started off in 1991's Boys in the Hood. She did. She was in 1993's Poetic Justice, 1995 Higher Learning. Those are three of the biggest black films of the 90s. Yes. She was in Friday. Let's, let's make that four <laughs> of the biggest four. black films in the 90s. In 1996, she was in A Thin Line Between Love and Hate, another big black film. She was in Jerry Maguire, Rituals, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, which is another big black film of the 90s. Enemy of the State, Mighty Joe Young. And then after that, her career kind of just survived over yeah. the course of 10, 15 years. She wasn't really in anything big. And then suddenly she just, she got, she got it again. She got it. And now it seems like she's in something big every other week. Yeah. I, I believe it started back in 2019 when she, I think it was 2019. Watchmen she, the, with the Watchmen. Watchmen was definitely a big, Watchmen a big put one. her back on the map because like ever beforehand she went to TV, dude. If she was on TV for a while, she was on TV for a while. And she was doing was Legally on, Blonde too, and yes. Miss Congeniality too. I mean, come on, and like no one wants that. The only the the one time that she came back for to my recollection was Watchmen, where she knocked it out of the park. I loved her in Watchmen. Yeah, she was really good. And then, of course, Idris Elba, who is another one of my favorite actors, up and coming favorite actors. He's been around for quite some time now, and he's pretty much always been recognized as a talent. He was in The Wire. He was in Luther. You know what was amazing about the Idris Elba casting at first? I was thinking when I first saw the trailer, I thought Idris Elba was going to be the hero because Idris Elba is that actor. He's like top tier dude he's like he's big he's big he's the biggest star in this he ends up being the villain yeah. which is amazing which you know if we went to spoilers we don't know yeah we'll, we'll get in we'll do but spoilers like, at the end but we yeah. usually don't but let's do it but it's amazing to me that basically number one i was happy that jonathan majors got the lead He's so he he, he you, deserves Do you agree it. that he's good? Oh, he's good. Yeah. I loved him in Lovecraft uh, Country. Yeah. And, you know, I do remember him after you, you t reminded me about Loki. Yeah, he was in Loki. I, he too. was in Loki. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a good get. But, like, the fact that they chose him to be the lead over Idris Elba 
really, again, says something. It says something yeah. that the director and the producers and everybody else is thinking. They they're not they're not looking at the bottom line and like saying, "Hey, let's just remake Magnificent Seven again yeah. and, and throw See, everybody into it." David, that is what I was scared. <laughs> yeah, that we were gonna get. I was scared that we were gonna get that. That's why I was cautiously anticipating the release of this film because I honestly felt like we were going to get another Magnificent Seven remake, which wasn't horrible, but it also wasn't great. You had this A-list cast and only Ethan Hawke was the one that really cut through. (laughs) Ethan Hawke was the best part of the movie. Yeah, that was the sad part. Yeah, he was very good in that film, but everyone else was kind of, eh, there wasn't really a story. You didn't really understand what was going on half the time. Like, what was the motivation? It just wasn't a great movie. And I thought that's what we were going to get here. And I could have been more wrong. Now, David, the original film title for this was The Notorious Nine. Now, oh, come on, dude. I know, that sounds so good, right? <laughs> it sounds so now, good. Interestingly, Dave, if you go to, if you go to James Samuel's IMDb, guess what's in pre-production? The Notorious Nine. Nine. So he apparently is making another movie. Now, how this movie ended, without getting into spoilers, the movie ended. You caught the ending, right? Where somebody survived? Yeah. Okay. You don't make a scene like that at the end where you show that one of the villains is actually alive. Is alive. Unless you plan to continue the story. There's no reason for that. So when I saw that, I was like, yes, we're going to get another one. And then I went to... Uh, James Samuel's IMDb and the Notorious Nine. I don't know if it's in production, but it's been announced, I believe. And honestly, dude, I'm happy to hear that because I think that James Samuel's, if he were to make like a series of Westerns, I would be happy. Oh yeah, dude, the guy, I'd be happy. The d- guy knows how to make a Western. He gets it. He actually, this isn't a guy that was hired by a studio and said, Hey, you know what? You have a five picture deal. Uh, and we have this script here. It's a Western. We want you to direct it. This is a guy who wanted to direct a Western because he actually loves Westerns and has a passion for them. You get that from the opening five minutes, the opening 10 minutes, the inciting incident, which David, I always say this in almost all of our discussions. One of the most important elements of any movie is the opening 10 minutes, which is considered the inciting incident. The inciting incident should not give you an idea of what the entire story will be like, but it clues you in and what type of movie you are watching. And that's exactly what it does. You have the death scene of some characters that actually is the motivation for the film. You then go to our lead character who blows away uh, uh, one of his villains or arch nemesis. And the way they do it, Dave, the moment they went to that title sequence, and he shoots that guy freeze frame on the title sequence, just <laughs> yes. like Sergio Leone did in numerous films, specifically the good, the bad and the ugly. I was beyond giddy. Yes. And I was like, okay, I think we might be in for a good time here. <laughs> yeah. That, I will say Dave, that maybe other people might not be as, Maybe people won't love this movie as much as you and I obviously do, because I will say that this film does speak to the film geeks in us. Yeah. Because 
it utilizes everything the things the reasons why we got into film and went to film school is because of movies like this yes and i can understand also mass audiences looking at this and thinking automatically especially in today's world that oh this is just going to be another agenda type movie it isn't and it isn't it's a fun ride it is an absolute it's a love letter to spaghetti westerns to black exploitation films really is yeah and there's the i i really hope people will get over themselves and just say hey you want to go see a good movie that you're going to have fun with like i'm not kidding dude from beginning to end i kept giggling at certain scenes like without giving spoilers yeah because i really this is one of those movies just, that's just moving to your final thoughts too yeah this is one of those movies that is really special to me to the point that i don't want to spoil it for anybody because I really think that people should see this film for for an absolute fun time. And, you know, in one of our other shows that me and you have covered, where we cover film, I gave a film a perfect score. What was that? That remember. was Nine Days. No, that's right. Nine Days to me. That was like, a good film. Hit yeah. my soul, dude. And I gave it a hundred. This movie easily gets to that hundred range for me as a fan. Okay. Okay. I'm, that's my score as a fan, but I'm going to think, think more logically as a critic, as a critic, as an objective critic, as an objective critic, this is easily a 95. Yeah. Because there's nothing, it, the, the only negatives you could take away is the simplistic story. And I can understand that because people, people actually point that out is like, it's a standard it's, revenge flick. It's a standard in the revenge way of writing, flick. Yeah. There's nothing really, you know, like awe inspiring or soul touching in this movie, but the twist is good. The twist is fantastic. Yeah. The twist is good because, because it changes the way you look at a lot of people. Exactly. And it's, it's fucking good. But like, I can understand people's because I see some people actually criticize, say that people are saying this is a great film, but, when you look at the narrative, when you look at the story and the writing, very simplistic. And I yeah. go, yeah, but again, it's about the details they add to that simple story. That's what makes it so good. Yeah. So you're giving this a 95%? 95. Okay. I forgot to walk into the saloon. That's what we're supposed to do on Weird West Radio. We're supposed <laughs> to right. walk open or open up those saloon doors. We were not going to turn in our guns. So that's no, not. No, no. We, we decided to walk in like Idris Elba and just kill people right away. No, like Bass Reeves. Yeah. He's like, no, I don't give up my gun for, for no one. <laughs> that's right. And then I'm going to go talk to uh, Zazzy Beats because she's hot. Oh, my God, dude. Like, hello, Zazzy. Mm-hmm. I like how she was cast to play stagecoach Mary. <laughs> yeah, I do too. There was no stagecoach. Yes. And if <laughs> Zazie Beats is so fucking hot, and she's a very thin woman, but too. And I only say that because stagecoach Mary was a big, big lady. Yeah. She was a big lady, not necessarily fat, just a big woman. Yeah. So to see that casting, it did make me chuckle a bit because it's the complete opposite of who she actually or how she actually looked. Yeah. But listen, again, historical accuracy was not the point, as the director told everyone at the beginning. And I'm glad he did that because there are so many historical babies that are fans of Westerns. Yeah. And they get so mad I think when there is something inaccurate in a Western that doesn't fit the times. And the way I look at it is it's 
it's escapism. It's escapism. It's, it's a point. film. Yeah. It I, is the world that the director creates. And if it's not trying to on itself off as an historical piece, then you need to give it some leeway. Yeah. Because like, and that's the thing that is a shame to me that when it comes to the Western genre, there's mm-hmm. not very many like creative like projects like the harder they fall because people are scared to actually do a revisionist history Yeah, because people will hate on it. Look at look at uh, Django. Django took a lot of oh all of Tarantino's uh, films, dude. Yeah, the, the the only thing that's that's cool about Tarantino is he doesn't care. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. All right, so Dave, let me give this a score. I forgot. So I'm gonna give this. My critical score is 93. percent Okay, and the only reason why it doesn't get a 95 percent or higher is the script is a bit. On the lighter side, it is. I don't think it's a bad script. I think it's a a B minus, maybe a B. But everything else in this film, cinematography, the production design, the acting, the action, it, those are A's. Yeah. I don't understand how anyone can see it differently. It is so well made. This movie, the script, as I said, is could have benefited from a, maybe a rewrite or maybe it, it was designed to be this way. Something I think it was designed that way. Yeah, and in that case it's it's just fine. So a 93%. Now if the film nerd in me had its way, this would probably be like 115%. <laughs> yeah, exactly, see? Yeah. And that that's the thing that's so strange to me and about like this film is like I wasn't expecting this. I was neither was I. I was expecting, you know, something like, eh, it's an okay film, you know, like Posse. <laughs> See, Posse <laughs> is a great that. movie, but it's a, it's, movie. it's a more standard Western though. But you, you would, you would say that that's Posse's in the grade of like a 80, 80s, like 89, yeah. 85. Posse's right? a good film. Yeah. I wasn't expecting like an absolute, you know, film clinic. I, I thought, yeah, I thought so. I honestly expected to, this to be like a 75 maybe 80 percenter i was thinking the same thing too yeah now interestingly a lot of the real critics are agreeing with our general consensus it seems our general thoughts i should say as most of them are giving between an 87 and 90 percent on rotten tomatoes and uh 7.5 out of 10 on metacritic Dude, you can, uh, I want to, I'm actually interested to see anyone out there tell us that this movie is not good and explain to us why. Yeah. Now, spoilers, Dave, we only have time. We don't have, we have, <laughs> we have one minute here. So I, I guess the biggest spoiler that I felt. Okay. I, okay. So number one, I'm not a fan of twist endings. I, I'm not. I think they're hacky and it's, in my opinion, it's a gimmick to make a script that wasn't that great. Suddenly, oh my God, look at this. That's how most of the time twists work. Yes. This twist does do that, but it doesn't change the story. It just makes you reevaluate one of our characters. That's the important part. And that's the villain himself. Uh, Idris Elba ends, ends up being a sibling of the hero and that love. And that may sound very, very silly, but actually the way they explain it, 
it doesn't justify the actions of the villain. However, we can, we as an audience are more sympathetic. We can understand him. We're saddened by the ending. Yeah. It's not a, it is a good ending, but it's not a happy ending. No. So that's about it. It's all we have time for, for spoilers. We don't have much. Which is good because I'm serious. Oh, spoiler, Zazzy Beats is super hot. Oh, yeah. Is that a spoiler? I don't think that's a spoiler. (laughs) I think that's like a hard fact. (laughs) All right. Let's close out today's discussion. I want to thank everyone for listening. I also want to remind all of our Weird West Radio listeners out there to hit us up on Patreon, patreon.com slash Digital. If you want more Weird West Radio, as well as a Spaghetti Western exclusive show that we do only for Patreon subscribers, make sure you pledge $4 or more a month and you'll gain access to our entire library of Spaghetti Western discussions, as well as our additional Weird West discussions. and. It helps us out. So you help yourself out because you get more content and you help us stay on the air. Patreon.com slash Rain Man Digital. Thank you, David. Thank you. And good night. What the hell are you doing? I ain't nowhere to board a train, you damn stupid nigga. <laughs>